welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. I'm joined today by my usual co-host, Paul Rag. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. And also by uh, Damien Tambini. Hi, Damien. Very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Damien is an associate professor at the London School of Economics and author of the recently published book Media Freedom, uh, published by Polity Press 2021. And it is on the subject of Damien's book that we're going to spend this podcast having a discussion today. Um, we're very grateful to Damien for uh, coming on and speaking to us about his book. Uh, and uh, Paul, who has also written in this field, uh, is happily here um, to provide some expert commentary. So, um, Damien, I wonder if I could start just by asking you to uh, talk a bit about the book, about your vision uh, that, that, that led to it, and um, about the impact that you think it might be able to have. Well, over 20 plus years working as a policy advisor and also an academic looking at the field of media regulation and media policy. I've been working in an area where I think we're, we're, we're all um, positioning ourselves to a certain extent, which is thinking about how technology changes, leading to changes in rules and how, uh, if you like, the kind of socio-legal framework around the media is under particular stress and strain at the moment. Um, and as I engaged with media policy, I was become incre became increasingly aware that there were a series of confusions and misconceptions, not merely at the level of rules or laws that apply to the media. And you can think of that in terms of um, the development of uh, rights of freedom of expression and freedom of the media, um, but also in terms of the global norms and the discussion um, of global frameworks of media regulation and media policy. So we have an emerging set of human rights rules, um, but also NGOs and international organizations that are developing frameworks, particularly among democracies, for thinking about how media should be regulated. So as I engaged with that, I became aware that behind the level of the rules, there is a set of normative debates and theoretical debates, and that there's a need to engage with those in order to resolve some of the day-to-day -day, um, misconceptions. So in practical terms, I would go to conferences, I would look at um, Article 19 and other NGOs and, and what they're arguing about, and through the Leveson cycle and through a lot of internet policy debates, I began to be concerned that people are talking about cross purposes and that there are some theoretical debates which we really need to engage with in order to get in order to resolve some of the policy debates so that's kind of where i'm positioning myself in terms of the particular confusions and misconceptions i identify in particular the us approach to freedom of expression and freedom of the media and that there is an increasing difference between that and what I call the international human rights approach to freedom of expression and freedom of the media. So the US approach claims that there are no special institutional rights for the media, 
I'm simplifying here, and we have to simplify in order to progress. Um, whereas in international human rights approaches, there is more scope for privileges for the media. So special privileges in law, whether that's in uh, defamation or in um, uh, in relation to uh, shield laws for protection of sources, uh, or in terms of other, uh, a range of other regulatory privileges, for example, um, broadcasting subsidies, um, we can see that there are these positive approaches in international human rights law um, and more of a negative approach in, in, in the US, uh, in the current interpretation of the US First Amendment. Um, and the book is really about um, my argument that that negative rights approach to the First Amendment is no longer sustainable. Um, and in order to understand all of that, we need to go into the history of the, its emergence and understand why we have those dif distinct approaches, um, which I think is based on historical context, but also technology. Um, and we need to understand something a little bit about the dynamic of change and that interaction between um, uh, media claiming privileges um, and um, a, a view and this is driving the, the, the US approach to the First Amendment, that if you grant privileges to the media, that's a slippery slope to state control of the media. Um, and I unpack the, the, the territory of the arguments. And, you know, it's quite a complex set of arguments in a relatively short book. Um, in terms of the hope, um, you know, this is an academic theoretical book. Um, it's uh, trying to engage at a level which is not really, it's not really for lawyers, although um, lawyers are, are, seem to be quite interested in the book, um, but it's really trying to speak to that international debate about um, norms and approaches. And really, um, my hope is that in future debates, for example, about uh, social media regulation, we can begin to have a, uh, and I can say a little bit more about work, for example, within the Council of Europe, um, which is which is doing this, uh, more of a debate about how to um, uh, maintain a positive approach and uh, accommodate that within the US approach, which is the default position of the platform that platforms themselves. So um, uh, I think we're going to have, as we go into the next policy cycle, lots and lots of debates about um, social media claiming um, uh, institutional rights to media freedom or claiming protections of various kinds. And I think my framework might help to a certain extent to um, address some of those concerns. Um, you know, I think these kinds of abstract theoretical books, frankly, they, um, they may be more helpful in terms of uh, helping a few experts uh, understand things and, and resolving a few things, but my hope, my hope is is that uh, we may be talking uh, across each other a bit less as we go into those new kind of policy cycles. Yeah, and that that um, aspect of the book really resonated uh, with me actually, Damien, because I've, I've thought that as well that there are sort of to entrench sides on the, uh, in the debate on, on press freedom and, and media freedom. And that's 
uh, often typified by uh, those who sit on the right wing of politics and those who sit on the left. Um, and it struck me as well, going back over the, the Leveson testimonials, just how, um, because these positions are so entrenched, they seem to perfectly anticipate each other, such that nothing can happen to move forward because they are so perfectly opposed, they can't get past each other. Um, so I definitely welcome the, the contribution that you have made there to say, hang on a minute, this isn't quite what what's going on, and I think you're misunderstanding. And that, that sort of mediation between the two, I think, is important. But I was also struck by the... Um, the, uh, the the enormity of the vision in a way, the the, uh, the breadth of it, because you address all forms of uh, media. I mean, when I, when I talk about media and press, I tend to sort of think of them as two separate things, that the press is the sort of institutional, uh, historical legacy uh, source of uh, information, newspapers, and uh, media is more all-encompassing that captures both broadcast but also the internet. They're all forms of information that is, that is thrown at us. Um, and so, um, but your vision is of reimagining how we treat all of those things uh, together. Um, now, our, our good friend uh, Dahim Sihi um, has written a book called Medium Law, um, in which he actually goes the opposite way and says, don't try and bring all these things together. They're all separate. Keep them all individualized because they all have their own norms and, and legal rules and it's possible to bring them all together. Um, but in your, in your vision of sort of bringing these things together, do you sort of imagine a sort of, a, a social, I mean, you talk in the book about a social contract, which sort of binds all the parties here. But do you imagine... Uh, everyone um, conforming to this social contract. Um, so the social contract is just about the person, or do you imagine that it only applies to those that engage with forms of communication? How how would the social contract work? Well, the, my my approach, and I mentioned this is a kind of a if you like a normative theory of media policy and law or it's 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 a framework the key idea to get is uh and this is i guess my frustration it's a frustration sort of born of teaching this and, and engaging with policymakers. <clears throat> the key idea to get is that this is about you know this is habermasian in the sense we're talking mm. about a particular mode of legitimizing complex societies and complex mm. states um and the, um, the the importance of uh, something like media freedom is that the idea itself has to be coherent in order for people to understand it and and for it to be uh, a potential basis for legitimacy um, for yeah. people to believe um, the uh, narratives and truths which are provided by the the um, by the media. So. Um, uh, the the principle of autonomy and Habermas talks about this in terms of um, him. He, he, he says that media, uh, complex democratic states require a self-regulating media system, um, mm. and 
what I go into in the book is a notion of, well, if we have this idea of media freedom, which is um, itself, um, citizens have to be concerned with the, 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 the idea that or they have to believe to a certain extent the idea that the media are free. Um, what does that mean? Um, and I, I use this very simple framework from rules, which is, you know, any theory of a freedom has to have a theory of um, what is free, who from, to do what. Um, and this is a very simple uh, idea of a freedom. And if you think about things like press freedom and um, uh, historically um, and also current debates around media freedom and um, the you know, concrete institutions like the OSCE, Office of the Special Repre Representative for Media Freedom, mm. or the Council of Europe Standards on Media Freedom, um, mm. they very often fail the test of having a simple, articulated theory of who are the media, uh, what are they free from, to do what. Mm. So what I'm doing is, is I mean, that's why it's slightly different to you know, a purely legal approach. I'm trying to say, okay, mm. let's strip everything back and just say, can, can we come up with a simple analytical account? Yeah. Um, so I'm working on this analytical level, but the reason to do that is because I'm assuming that in order to legitimize a democratic state and in order for the public to believe what the media are in this era yeah. of conspiracy theories, they have to really understand to what extent they're really free. Now, when it comes to distinctions between the press and other media, mm. um, I would say, um, you know, and I go through the history of this, you can understand why, mm. um, although since the French Revolution, we have notions of individual human rights and individual expression rights and they have implications for the media, mm. um, the notion of special institutional rights for the media depends on the context. So the press and when uh, movable type emerges and, and the historical context and then the, the, the evolution of notions of, of press freedom as separate from speech and expression freedom. Yeah. Um, and then with broadcasting, spectrum scarcity, the notion that the technology of broadcasting creates because of its affordances, different approaches to um, broadcasting freedom. So you see mm. this kind of technology and historical context-driven uh, development of these different kinds of media freedom. But of course, in the current environment, and you know, here's where I differ to McSing and and you know the the medium law idea is in the current environment. Um, yes, the legacy is of. Uh, different approaches to different media, but you know, in in you know this very very old debate now about convergence, what we've been grappling with is is a future in which, in principle at least, those legacy frameworks need to be brought together and they need to be simplified. Um, mm. And what media are, and I you know sort of d discuss this to a certain extent. If we if we think about um, you know whether it's um, you know, the current, if you look at the Audiovisual Media Services Directive and the Digital Services Act, what they're really grappling with in their, their definitions is the fact that um, these sectors are no longer separate and they're, they're, they're coming together. And um, uh, we need, uh, I would argue, if we're thinking about the future and an agreed normative framework, we do need some sort of general theory. Um, and 
you know, it, it's central to my argument that this has to be quite simple um, and it has to be analytically kind of coherent um, yeah. uh, in order for it to stand the chance of maybe orienting some of our future debates. And that, you know, going back to this question of, of impact, you know, that it's not a blueprint, um, but, um, you know, I draw on institutional economics to come up with this approach, which is, you know, that, that in, if you think about kind of path dependent ideas, um, yeah. the um, having a simple agreed idea around which policy frameworks, regulation and, and, uh, 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 and wider institutions can be built, mm. um, then that's uh, a, a, a theory of how these kinds of norms, institutions, ideas can orient behavior. So, um, you know, I guess secretly I'm, 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 you know, somewhat ambitious about the idea um, for those reasons. And so in, in the book as well, of course, you touch on this by talking about, um, well, you, you tackle it from a couple of, of different ways. You talk about the difference between freedom from and freedom to. Um, freedom from is a sort of negative right, you know, the state cannot interfere. But you also talk about um, freedom to as a sort of positive right and a sort of um, a, almost an obligation of the state to ensure certain things happen, such as there being this this critical opposition to state. Um, and and media is an important uh, an important way of doing this. And uh, you also talk about media freedom, I think, as a as an audience uh, orientated uh, right rather than a sort of speaker right. Um, I'm really interested in this idea, and and as we converge and sources of information become much broader, um, is there a danger of sort of losing that sense of the two groups? You know, this is the speaker and this is the audience. Because back in the sort of 19th century, of course, it was very coherent. You know, the, the speakers were an elite group in London and the audience was an elite group in London. Uh, often similar people sort of swapping over and we were talking about, you know, rule makers and people who are disgruntled. But, but as that sort of grows, does it still make sense to talk about speaker and audience, given that they, they are sort of hopping between the two constantly? Um, th there's a great passage in Eric Barrent's um, Freedom of Speech, the, the classic book from 1985, where he... Um, talks about the interests in freedom of uh, yeah. speech and freedom of expression. And he talks about the right, the interests of the speaker and the interests of the audience. Um, and he then also talks about the interests of, uh, if you like, the, 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 the distinction between the addressee and then the audience or the general public, if you like, or the other observers um, and maybe the non-consumers. And I, I, would extend that and say that they're also the interests, of course, of the subjects of the story, um, uh, and the uh, you know whose reputation might might be at stake. And it is it is useful to to think about um, all of these. And you know, I mean, I think behind a lot of the kind of big changes in law and regulation are mm. struggles about the importance of these different groups and different modes of, of regulation 
very often indirectly impact these different groups in different ways. Um, so uh, th- there is a, um, you know, you might have a, you know, plaintiff friendly defamation regime, uh, which uh, obviously uh, prioritizes the the uh, subjects of the stories over the general public and the audience and the, and, and their, in, their, 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 their interests. Um, and I think some of the things that we can do as we uh, think about new frameworks is think about how these different different um, interests, as Berent calls them, interact with each other. Mm. Um, so I would, you know, I would absolutely uh, agree that the um, we can we can think about the need to um, think about the audiences and you know the, the you mentioned before the the whole Leveson cycle. Um, mm. And um, you know we're we're all, we're all those of us that went through that policy cycle are all slightly kind of bewildered by mm-hmm. this was a, an attempt to kind of redress through shifting to co-regulation yeah. um, the balance away from <laughs> the, the the rights of the speakers to audiences and subjects yeah. um, and uh, you know it, it it has not been implemented so. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that, that that it's useful to think about those those different interests. Definitely. Well, ju- we're just carrying on that point then. So I I agree entirely with you. I mean, I I think there's three definite uh, groups of interest that uh, regulatory codes speak to very clearly. I mean, the first is, as you say, the subjects, or as I call them, the victims of uh, stories, uh, where uh, reputational interests. Um, privacy interest, and also the right to a fair trial all, all converge. Um, then there are the sort of reader interests, um, and you see that, for example, in the ISO Code of Conduct, which talks about financial information and rules around what can be said in that sphere. Um, and there's finally sort of societal interests, and it's those societal interests that I think you speak to very clearly when you talk about the importance of what well, you talk about it on page 143, the importance of common spaces and trusted verified truths uh, without which we, we're not going to have our deliberative democratic environment. Now, law, it strikes me, is, is perfectly set up to address those first two interest groups. Yeah, because the liberal frame, framework that underpins our laws um, speaks clearly to harm as something that can be regulated uh, with a lowercase r, um, through legal institutions. So um, reputational damage, for example, and the, the right to a fair trial, and also consumer interests in you know, getting what you thought you were paying for. But I think where law struggles is in protecting societal interests because law doesn't quite know what to do to jump in to help out. It sort of struggles with this idea of where the victim is in an environment in which, uh, let's say, a newspaper disseminates false information and people accept it uncritically. Law can't quite work out, well, well, who's caused harm here and, and what what's the nature of that harm? So let's, let's go back to your social contract theory because I think you expressed this really well in the book. How would you see law grappling with that societal problem, if I can put it that way? Well, 
if you think about you know the the distinction between i mean that particular model of individual harm um and <clears throat> media law and the way it deals with say harm to reputation mm. um through individual cases and 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 standards which are set out in law and balancing tests and 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 so forth um the you know i don't really accept that law can't deal with societal harm and if, if you think about um broadcasting law and regulation you think about what's codified in the communications act um, yeah. and through broadcasting licenses mm. they also include societal harms and societal benefits and, and notions of the public interest of course are written into both areas of law mm. um and um, there may be obligations, for example, um, in uh, there may be public interest defences, for example, in um, uh, cases where there are um, uh, harms to individual reputa reputation. Um, right. And equally, there may be public interest obligations applied to broadcasters. Now, wh where I think this is particularly current is if we think about the distinction between the current draft of the online uh, safety bill um, and we compare that with the digital services act so mm. there's been a real big debate about um, uh, social harms within the online safety bill so the government has a draft we're waiting to see the new the new draft of the online safety bill um, but the current draft sets out a number of individual harms and there's been a certain amount of criticism that despite um, the scrutiny committee being chaired by Damian Collins, who has been a champion of policies against disinformation. There is no scope really in the current draft of the online safety bill for, for obliging platforms to deal with disinformation. So um, that's in contrast to the European approach and Digital Services Act, which arguably brings into co-regulation the the uh, uh, code of practice on disinformation at the EU level, which of course we're not um, subject to, but the, um, the I think the, the the what the European approach demonstrates is that is it, it is in fact possible, um, and this kind of um, new approach to online harms regulation, which is has some similarities to broadcasting uh, regulation, it's not. It's very, very different. But what it does is say to the platforms that they're um, responsible for reducing these harms and they can include social harms. Now, what, why, why that's a problem is because, of course, you're delegating all the power to the platforms to define what they are. Um, and these are private organizations um, headquartered on the other side of the, the world. Um, mm -hmm. And... So, obviously questions around what is a social harm what is disinformation how do those interests stack up um yeah. uh that, that that's incredibly problematic so one of the things that um i think the social contract needs to do is um uh, really shore up the legitimacy of those kinds of decisions about what those social harms are and really think procedurally about who decides what is harm and um, I mentioned before, um, I've been working on one of the Council of Europe expert groups, um, which is an expert group on media governance. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, the Parliamentary Assembly has now 
approved the draft of a new um, recommendation on principles for media and communication governance. And what that does is really focus on um, that question, who decides what are social harms? Um, And uh, it sets out some fairly uh, obvious, in a way, principles around transparency and public involvement. But I think the big shift currently as we move towards new uh, social institutions for regulating platforms and and we create these new co-regulatory frameworks for regulating online speech, mm. we need to think about how to make that structure itself legitimate. And that means public involvement. I think the time has really come for um, citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries, um, opening up those processes of decision-making because the current framework within the Online Safety Bill, which delegates to Ofcom a lot of powers. Ofcom obviously is not quite independent enough. It needs to be more independent, but it also needs to be more transparent. It needs to be more open to public involvement. Right, okay. And and just on that point about um, private sources of power, because you talk about this a lot in the um, in the book, and this is this is an important important issue. It's always been an important issue that you know the well the, the the printed press in this country is owned by you know five billionaires, uh, none of which really live here or really even pay taxes. But um, the the issue is around um, uh, property and property rights. You know the the law sort of respects, I think, that uh, a newspaper is. Um, owned by uh, people it's a business it's organized in the way that all businesses are and and you know despite our romantic idea that the first duty of the of the press is to the public in fact since it's a company the first duty of the press is to its shareholders uh, to generate revenue um now in in the book you talk of course about twitter and you talk about the decision to remove trump uh, from the platform, of course, it wasn't just Twitter. Eventually, it was everyone when they cottoned on to what what Trump was doing. Um, but you see that you see that as a problem. And I'm interested in that aspect of your argument. What what would legitimise us to interfere with the private decision to remove someone from that person's property? So this this is a complex one, and I think it helps to. Um, look back at the notion of media pluralism Um, and the notion of media pluralism you know it's there in the uh, eu treaty on fundamental rights um it's embedded in 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 case law across europe and including in the of course in in the uk um and i think what the the um you know the 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 simple formulation I would say is that private censorship is censorship insofar as the private censor is dominant. So, you know, I'm very relaxed about a small platform in a competitive market where consumers can easily switch out and where at the level of consumers there is uh, exposure diversity, that is consumers are uh, able to access uh, content across a variety of platforms, sources, and content types. Um, but I'm not relaxed about private censorship where there is low switching, 
where the platform is dominant, where it has um, a, a, a dominant share in a, in a market and where consumers maybe are locked in. So, you know, private censorship is, is censorship, you know, and, they, and, and we can use that term um, only if platforms are, are dominant. Otherwise, it's something which is a bit more like editorial control, right? Um, so that's, that's how I would see the principle. And um, I think, you know, at the European level, but, and not at, not at all as far as I can see in the UK, there is a lot of discussion about how um, media pluralism ideas need to be updated in order to uh, mm. think about, you know, what is the um, uh, appropriate framework for uh, content moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, I think it does need to be linked in some way to this this uh, this question of dominance. And of course, the Digital yeah. Services Act has, um, as does the, the online safety bill, has uh, a, a series of categories of different kinds of platforms. Um, the, the famous VLOPs, the very large online platforms, have a lot more obligations yeah. Uh, for, for example, transparency, risk assessment, uh, uh, involvement of third parties in their content moderation. And yeah. I think what we'll see is, a, is is an evolution where the public have more, uh, through civil society, through trusted flaggers, through trusted third parties, have more involvement in the processes of censorship when they are operated by very large online platforms. Well, can I just uh, sort of come back to something that, that you just said there? I think there's there's two interesting uh, points that, that spin off from that. The first is almost, and and I think this is where I disagree. This idea of free speech almost as a as a right to effective speech. You know, if I have um, if I own a platform that is particularly successful, and I say, "Well, you can't come on. I'm not letting you on. Go somewhere else." Am I denying you your right to free speech? Well, I would say no. I'm just denying you your claim to effective speech. Much in the same way as the newspaper. You know, when I when I ask the newspaper to print my letters, it happens a lot, uh, and they say no, we don't want to hear from you. You know, stop stop calling us. Um, I wouldn't say they're denying my right to free speech um, as such because I can publish these letters elsewhere. So that's that's the sort of first thing. The second thing that I'm interested in, though, is is because, of course, one one theme of, of the book um, is actually stated on, on page 163, where you talk about the media must be protected from both state and private control, which I think are really important ideas. But actually, in terms of private control, when you look at decisions like the decision that Twitter took, I think there's an element of public control there. I think there's an element of what Mill called the the tyranny of the majority, which is that, you know, in a a simplified uh, world, businesses are sensitive to to popularity. Businesses want to make money and they see um, the popularity as an important indicator of making money. You know, if people are so simplified, if people like them, they will endorse them, they will buy their product. If they don't like them, they won't, they'll turn off. Mm-hmm. So when tr- when Trump was eventually ejected from Twitter, YouTube, everywhere else, that to me spoke to popularity, the popularity interest, because there'd been calls for Trump to be banned for a very, very long time. 
Twitter didn't think it was in its interest to get rid of him because he was bringing a lot of business to them. It was only when he crossed a line when public, when the public mood, I think, would shift to where this is outrageous, get him off. Because he was causing problems. He was inciting violence on the Capitol building. Mm. Is that, this is why I was surprised in a way that you, you sort of called out the Trump example, because I would have thought that actually spoke to your ideas. That's the public saying this man shouldn't be on this platform. But the decision is Twitter's. And that's mm. the problem. Um, the problem, if um, you have a um, private actor that is, you know, and take, if you take the position, imagine yourself in the shoes, this may be difficult, of a Trump-supporting US voter uh, who mm -hmm. thinks the election has been stolen, um, yeah. and there are many of them, um, yeah. you are looking at a system in which um, your president's speech rights have been taken away without any um, form of legal process or, or, or address. Um, that's what it looks like. So the point I guess I'm making is, um, yes, we can get into a discussion about you know, the, the freedom of speech rights of the, the mm. user versus the and uh, the speech rights of the platform in, in, in US law, um, they would be dis described in that way. Um, but the, I think the essential um, problem in all of this, and this is why we come back to legitimacy, and this is why we come back to the kind of procedural, how do you do this stuff? Um, yeah. How do you trust that decision-making process? And you have the same thing, of course, with Spotify at the moment, with um, the... Um, the question of uh, should Spotify be uh, either putting warnings or um, removing uh, COVID-oriented uh, uh, blogs and uh, podcasts. Um, yeah. So not blogs, podcasts. So you know they they are all the same problem, uh, and it's a problem mm. that we have to deal with. And I don't think it is like a letters page of a, a, a of a newspaper. Right. Um, in part because of the levels of dominance um, mm. and uh, the the inability to switch, and um, in part because of the you know the 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 podcast the podcast removal may completely end somebody's um, uh, business, um, and uh, you know there the, there are I think uh, kind of questions of of, uh, of of scale in relation to these kinds of. Uh, these kinds of censorship decisions um mm. and um there are also questions of of scarcity of, of 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 space and so on but i think what you you know there are cases um there is the panopticon case in 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 poland where um which is ongoing where you have uh, people trying to claim people have been removed from platforms like facebook and i think this was a mm. case of a I think it's a drug information um, website which has been removed, um, mm. claiming speech rights against the platform. Um, yeah. So uh, it's an it's a difficult but interesting and developing area of law, which mm. is um, really, uh, I think you know in in Europe we wouldn't really accept that um, 
the 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 the, the platform has speech rights, and I think yeah. increasingly we're thinking about the rights of the speaker uh, that may be censored by the the, the platform, and and this question mm-hmm. of you know when especially when platforms may be under the Digital Services Act or online safety bill. Uh, acting at the behest of public authorities or as pseudo public authorities, then I think it becomes even more interesting. Yeah. You talked earlier about transparency and the need uh, and the importance of bringing citizens into Ofcom. Um, but unless there's going to be a sort of um, text in service like like we see on uh, Has Britain Got Talent or, or um, Bouncing on Ice with Polar Bears. Um, it, unless we've got that kind of frenetic yes or no, do we eject this person or not, you know, there's always going to be a limited number of people. And it, even with the, 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 the most um, genuine commitment to transparency, decisions will be made that other people disagree with and, of course, agree with. Um what I'm interested in, though, with and going back to the Twitter example, and I know we're talking not about Trump, we're talking about, you know, you're using Trump as the example of something that we all saw, but you're also talking about those cases that we don't see. But with an organisation like Twitter, you know, it does have a set of rules that are publicly available that are uh, rational, uh, that meet the sort of liberal idea, uh, ideal, of protecting people from demonstrable harms. You know, it's not as if these rules are saying, right, no one can use the word plank on a Tuesday, and if you do, you're going to be ejected. Um, No pictures of bananas. Um, Cheese has to be included all the time. You know, these they don't have rules like that. And with Trump, of course, they did follow a process. There were warnings. Um, But also, one of the things that that Twitter was... um, critical of, um, and one of the things Trump took, took exception to, of course, and his supporters, was that they kept pointing out a lot of the stuff he was saying was unverified and therefore unreliable and therefore fake uh, in his own parlance. Um, but, it, I mean, isn't isn't this the kind of system that you would want to see uh, in place, given what you've said about the importance of verified truth? Well, it's true that Twitter and the other platforms increasingly have um, content moderation guidelines. People are increasingly aware of of them. They are raising their standards. They are um, claiming to be hiring more more and more moderators and investing more and more in this because they have to, in part, to head off regulation. But it's it's also true that we, we have been talking about these issues for <coughs> a number of years and raising questions about whether those moderation guidelines are in fact uh, adequately implemented. And that's why you have had uh, successive parliamentarians and parliamentary inquiries looking at hate speech. It's why we have the NetsDG in Germany. It's why we have the Digital Services Act, which is going to check that they do what they say on the tin um, and um, uh, effectively I think that the, the ship has sailed we now have a, uh, a Europe which is headed for co-regulation here right so um, the Digital Services Act and the Online Safety Bill uh, will now 
uh, run a rule over the extent to which Twitter and the other platforms are in fact um, uh, implementing those moderation guidelines, even where there are complaints. Because mm-hmm. the situation before, you know, whether you're Diane Abbott or uh, whoever, um, mm-hmm. uh, and you have been telling people about the um, clear breaches of of, of law uh, mm-hmm. around hate speech and um, uh, and seeing Twitter fail over a number of years to remove specific pieces of content which you have told them about. You know, there have even mm-hmm. been cases. I was at a select committee hearing where um, the the uh, Twitter were up at, uh, in front of the um, uh, select committee, and they were informed that a piece of content that they had promised in their appearance at the select committee the previous year to remove was still there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ship has sailed. Um, the uh, we're, we're moving to uh, a co-regulatory framework, and the, this comes with a danger. And in the book, I call it censorship by the blob, um, mm. because once you have that question of of uh, a regulator using delegated powers under legislation, um, running a rule over a platform to whether it is uh, implementing its appropriate content guidelines, and these have standards which are not about, for example, uh, legal standards of hate speech, which is obviously a very high bar, but they are. Um, their own standards, uh, then you have this potential for real mistrust and um, a conspiracy of them um, as the speech regulators uh, Mm. and uh, an opaque blob of regulation, um, Mm. as I would describe it. And that is why it's really urgent that you have uh, a, a step change in transparency and you have real public involvement and you have real trust in these frameworks. Because if you don't, it will just and justifiably be, and there will be dangers of that slippery slope to censorship. It will be viewed as uh, with with mistrust, um, and it, and people will shift to unregulated platforms, of course, um, and gather there, um, uh, and uh, you will have made the problem worse. Well, thank you, both of you. That is, I think, just about all that we've got time for on this podcast. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much, Damien, for coming on and sharing your ideas uh, and, and, and the content of your book with us. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's really been fun, and I look forward to more discussions. We'll be back on the Media Law podcast before too long. Uh, in the meantime, from both Paul and I, take good care of yourselves. <laughs>